How are you doing, everyone? Please turn in your book, uh, in your Bible, if you have one, uh, to Acts chapter 12, verses. Uh, we'll start with verse 1, and we'll um, go through that story this morning. We're in an incredible season as a church. It's um, great to have you here. If you are new here or new online, welcome. My name is Mbonisi. I'm one of the uh, elders here at One Tribe, and... Uh, God is, God is doing something special. It's, it's, it's great to hear this incredible feedback from the Deaf Awareness Week and all that happened Saturday. Yesterday as well, we had a group of uh, 26 people um, on a course called Setting People Free, uh, which is all about um, together stepping into and helping one another into the freedom that God has for us. The Bible says it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. And um, we're going to be looking at a story that looks at that, that theme of freedom from a particular angle. Um, it looks at this victory of Christ that um, Mutheu was prophesying about from a particular angle. And so we're just going to dive in and um, ask, ask for God's help as we get into this. Father, we thank you for this incredible time of worship. Um, just in case there's any doubt, after that song that we were singing... Uh, Jesus, we are unable to name another king like you. We just want that to be clear. We want it to be articulated. We want it to be not just implied, but stated. There is no one like you, Jesus. And we thank you that uh, through your spirit, you, the living word, can be manifest in our midst this morning. We ask that as your word is proclaimed, Jesus, that your name would be magnified. We ask that each one of us would hear your voice. And we pray that as you promised, you would build your church. And by that we mean specifically one tribe, but we also mean build each of our lives as a part of your church. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Great. Well, we're in Acts chapter 12. It was about this time that King Herod, about what time? Well, uh, we've just, in last week, we were talking about the church in Antioch. We were talking about how the Antioch story, in some ways, unlike any other story in the Bible, articulates what God has called us to as a local church, one tribe in Nairobi. And uh, we saw how that church was birthed, how prophets came up from Jerusalem. Some of you will remember the maps from last week. And uh, they responded to this prophetic word about caring for those who were poor um, at a time of crisis. And they sent a gift from Antioch to Jerusalem. And so it was around this time that the, uh, King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. So we start off here with a juxtaposition. Um, Acts chapter 12, verse 5, is, it sums up the story so beautiful. It says, so Peter was kept in prison on the one hand, 
but the church was earnestly praying to God for him on the other hand. Herod's prison on one side, the praying church on the other side. And uh, this got me meditating about and thinking about our theme for this morning, which is essentially the big idea for this morning is God is calling us as a church to be a people of prayer. And specifically, we are calling one another as a church, as a team of elders, pastors, we are calling our church to three days of prayer in the context of this passage. We don't want to be a church that just reads the book of Acts like an academic exercise, like fairy tales from long ago and like, uh, you know, Goldilocks and the three bears. And this is, this is nice and this will be good things to go through before we go to bed. But we are asking God to shape us, to mold us, to disciple us, to apprentice us as we go through these scriptures. And Acts chapter 12 is an essential ingredient if we're going to be the church that God has called us to be. If you're going to be the Christ follower that God has called you to be, we're called to be a people of prayer. And we see this juxtaposition of uh, Herod's prison and we see a praying church. And some, one of the reasons I think that we don't pray as much as we like, we don't pray as much as we feel we should, one of the reasons why every time that someone brings up the subject of prayer or writes a book on prayer or preaches a sermon on prayer, the general response in most churches and most places at most times is, oh, we're not doing great at that and we'd like to do more. But there's always this kind of tension, this struggle between where we'd like to be in, time, in terms of our prayer and where we actually are. And I think one of the reasons for that is because we don't think that we are in a time of crisis. We don't see all that is going on. And I love in this story, we, we, we get this, this, this description of Herod. Now, Herod, if you, if you um, know the Bible story, you know this guy's family tree. This guy is called Herod Agrippa. And just to tell you a little bit about his gene pool, to, to let you know a little bit about his upbringing, his grandfather was the guy who killed all children under the age of two, in, in the area because he heard that a king from the, from, for the Jews was going to be born. That was his granddad. His uncle was Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is the guy who uh, beheaded John the Baptist and who became friends with Pontius Pilate during Jesus' trial. That's his uncle. And now Agrippa is King Herod, and in that word king is bundled up what was going on is historically. What was going on historically is for decades, the, 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 the nation of Israel had been parceled up between different Herods and Tetrarchs and so on. There'd never been a king who ruled over the whole region, the whole area, until King Herod came along. And so he had more power. He was a more powerful man in the nation of Israel than they had seen for decades. And he's taken James, one of the apostles, and has put him to death by the sword. And after that, he thinks, actually, this, this, this is getting a good crowd response here. And so I'm going to go for Peter next. 
And he takes Peter and he puts him in prison during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We, we read from these scriptures that he's in maximum security. There had been stories of Peter breaking out of prison before, so he wasn't taking any chances this time. He had him chained between two guards, and another guard maybe at the next door, another guard at the next door. These guards are four soldiers taking shifts of maybe three hours each to guard Peter while he was in prison. Now, this is a dire situation, and it was in response to this that the church was praying. And I'll be honest with you, when, when I see the pattern of prayer in the book of Acts, I look at it and I think, my life just doesn't measure up. And as, as I was thinking about why, why is that, I think one of the reasons is that we lose sight of what's going on in our hearts, and the need for prayer there. We also lose sight of what's going on in the physical world around us, sometimes at a global scale. Things for which the only answer is prayer. And we also lose sight of what's going on in the spirit world around us. Let's start with what's going on in the spirit world around us. Now, one of the good things, one of the things I think helped this church towards prayer was a realization of the immediacy of the danger that they were in. They could see that this guy, King Herod, is on a rampage. They could see that he has already killed, had uh, presided over the execution of James. And now he's going for Peter. Peter is in prison. This, this feels like a crisis for a church when one leader is beheaded and the next has been arrested and is, is being prepared for trial, the outcome of which is already pretty much certain. That looks like a crisis. But we are unaware of what's going on in the spirit world and we get some insights into it. Actually, one of them comes from Peter. Peter said to believers who were scattered over the earth, he said, listen, your enemy is prowling around. Now, when I say the words, your enemy, there are some of us who, by nature of our personalities, we understand and appreciate that there are some people out there who just don't like us. But then I look around this room and I see several faces, and I think, can there be a human being who doesn't like Yvonne? She's just so, I can't think of anyone who'd be an enemy of Yvonne. But then scripture steps in with a helpful reality check and says, hey, listen, if you are a follower of Christ, you have an enemy. And it's actually more about Jesus than it is about you, but you do have an enemy. And he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking who he can devour. Now, our church drinks from two important pools. We drink from the pool of the Word. We drink from the pool of the Spirit because we believe that the Word actually is the sword of the Spirit. And as a result of that, 
Sometimes people can come and visit and think that we're a very charismatic pentecostal church, and I hope that happens most weeks. And other weeks, people may come along and think this is a very studious and, and, and Bible-based and passionate about the word church, and I hope that happens most weeks because actually we're both. But in this whole area of spiritual warfare, there tends to be a kind of church, a kind of Christian that gets very excited about what the devil is doing. Do you know what I'm talking about? And uh, so when we say, well, you know, there's, the devil is out there, you have an enemy. We can think, are we going all hyper-Pentecostal and are we going off into cloud cuckoo land where we're going to be swinging from the lights and, 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 and shouting at one another and shouting at the devil? But I was, I was, I was really helped. And the answer is no, we're not going to do that. But I was really helped by <laughs> one guy who models love for the word and love for scripture. Unlike many people, he passed away recently. His name is J.I. Packer. Some of you know him. And he, he painted this vivid picture based on the Lord's prayer, based on Jesus saying, when you pray, pray, God, deliver us from evil. This is Jesus telling us how to pray, and a lot of translations translate that, deliver us from the evil one. And based on that, J.I. Packer says, my friend, do you see yourself? He says, if, if, when, when we are prayerless Christians, he says, it's like we are blind people trying to cross Waiaki Way without help, with traffic going, both ways, I'm even having to open my eyes because I don't want to fall down and hurt myself. But he says that we're like people, blind people, trying to cross a busy street both ways if we don't realize that we have an enemy and he is real. Real enough for Peter to say he's like a roaring lion. Real enough for Jesus to say that you should pray regularly, deliver us from that guy. We fail to be aware of that. The enemy runs riot in our inner world. He runs riot in our marriages, riot with our children, riot in our schools, riot in our workplaces, riot in our nation. That's what's going on spiritually. But I want us to also look at this from a, a particular place. There was a philosopher called uh, Kant. And uh, Kant, he, he said something that helps us just to think about, you know, for those of you who are on your spiritual journey, you're like, is there a God even? Is there a spirit world? And Kant said something helpful. He says that there, there, there are two things that fill my heart with awe. It's the kind of awe that can only really be, be accounted for by a God. He said there are two things that, that, that consistently fill our hearts with awe. He said the first is the starry host above, and the second is the moral law within. And so he says that one of the reasons that I I, there's something, there's this awe factor in my soul, is when I look at the heavens, when I look at the stars, it fills me with awe. And I can't explain it. And he said that when I look inside myself, there's a moral law, there's this distinction between right and wrong in the very core of my being. I can't account for that by natural factors. And as we talk about prayer, I want to talk about us not being aware of what's going on, first of all, 
out there, and I'm not talking about the starry host, but if you like, at the, there are two frontiers, I heard someone say, of the gospel, two frontiers of gospel activity. One is the uttermost ends of the earth, and the other is the innermost depths of our hearts. And one of the challenges is that we, don't, we aren't aware of what's going on in our hearts. We aren't self-aware. We don't see the pride. We don't see the lies that the enemy loves to sow into our hearts. We don't see the strongholds that, have, that keep us bound to a certain way of thinking. We don't see the things in our lives that are idols. We don't see the things that are exalting themselves against the knowledge of God. We aren't seeing the besetting sins that we've been struggling with. We've, and, and we become so used to them that we are like fish in water with them. We don't even know that they are there. We don't see those things and so we don't pray. We don't see the uttermost ends of the earth. We don't see untold millions of peoples who are living and dying on our watch without hearing the gospel. We don't see those things. And when we see those things, friends, it calls us to prayer. And so I, I, what, what, I'm, what am I trying to communicate? This is important for our personal lives. It's important at a heart level. It's important in terms of what God has called us to do. It's important in terms of what's happening spiritually. If you live and work and play in Nairobi and you aren't aware that there is a big bad devil out there who is very, very busy, then you don't know what you're looking at. That's a little bit about prayerlessness and this juxtaposition. We have Herod and then we have him. We've got Herod's prison and then we've got the praying church. I love this verse. Every word in this verse is helpful. The church was earnestly praying to God for Peter. How is this helpful? The Bible says that who was praying? The church. Does it say... The leaders were praying. Does it say there was a highly skilled group of spiritual ninjas called the intercession team? They were the ones praying. No, 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 you don't see that in Bible. Now, I'm not against prayer teams. I'm not against intercession teams. I'm not against, uh, uh, what was the first thing that I talked about? I'm not against leaders praying. But listen, team, you didn't get any of those from the Bible. Have an intercession team if you like, but you did not get it from the Bible. Why? What do you see in the Bible? In the Bible you see a praying that is a people, an army, a body, together, committed to prayer. So friends, so we call one another to prayer. We are a praying church. And man, I, I, I love being prayed for and I love praying with this church. I love being in our life group like we were last Wednesday evening and our life group leaders, Thierry and Emma, consistently end by saying, who can we pray for? What can we pray for? I love it when I'm in life group on Wednesday evening online. On Thursday, I'm jumping onto a plane to go and help another church somewhere and I land there and someone in the life group sends me a text saying, we're still praying for you. Oh, I love being in a church like that. We want to be a praying church. I love gathering at 9.15 on a Sunday morning, a meeting that all of you are invited to because it's not for the spiritual ninjas, it's for the church. We pray and intercede for you who are coming today and for our time together. And friends, it helps us, it blesses us, it builds us. 
So we want to be a church that is praying. This church was praying, and this church was praying earnestly. And we want to be a people of earnest, consistent, persistent prayer. When you see me pause like that, it's because I'm thinking, should I say it or shouldn't I? But I think I'll say it. I'll say it because it's a good thing. I would say that over the years, the five years we've been here, it's, it's, it's gotten easier to preach in this church, and that's a good thing. And I, I can't explain it, but it's, it's something... It's something you best understand if you're a preacher, but sometimes there's an openness of people's hearts. Sometimes there's a faith in the room. Sometimes there's a love for Jesus and love for the Word. Sometimes there's a hunger and a desire to press into the things of Him that, in a way, I can't explain. It makes it easier to preach. And so I just want to encourage you, whatever you're doing, keep on doing it. But I also want to keep on undermining and attacking things that we bring into church that we may think are cultural, and to a certain degree are cultural, but actually we don't get them from the Bible. One is, the best way to, to praise Jesus is without dancing. You don't get that from the Bible. And actually, when we see people worshiping in the Bible, we see hands lifted up, and we see dancing and celebration. And that's why I love it when Yvonne is up here, and she says, can you do this? And I think, yes, because I want my feet to praise Jesus. I want my hands to praise Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. And this is one of the ways I do it. Does that make sense? And this is, this is not about African culture. It's not about Western culture. Or It's actually what do we see in the Bible? And is our God worthy of that? Where am I headed with this? Sometimes we can get into the mold that the way we pray, when we're telling our kids to pray, when I was to, went to Whitestone, Whitestone School in Bulawayo, Zimbabwe, they would say, it's time to pray, children. Therefore, hands together, eyes closed. Now, friends, you can pray like that, it's okay, but let's just be clear, I don't think you got that from the Bible. No, you didn't. Hands together or hands lifted? Eyes closed, maybe. But I'm challenging us to come back to Scripture. And what do we see in Scripture? Well, if you want to know how Jesus prayed, check it out in the book of Luke, uh, chapter 22, verse 44. It says, And in his anguish he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Hebrews says of this time when he's in the garden that he raised up loud cries to God. What am I saying, guys? I'm saying that if we want to pray like Jesus, this is what it looks like. Now, not all the time, not every time. I'm not saying every time that you are having your devotional in the morning, you've got to be binding the work of the enemy and you've got to say devil. No, 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 I'm not saying that. But I am saying that if that never happens, then there's a problem. 
And if we want to become more like Jesus, we've got to say, God, would you disciple us in this art of earnest wrestling prayer? Earnest prayer. Wrestling prayer. Prayer isn't all about emotions, but if all of our prayer is devoid of emotion, that's a problem because God has made us emotional beings. Does that make sense? So one thing I would say that will help us as we embark on three days of prayer and fasting is actually at the start of a meeting, your emotions are irrelevant. Uh, One person said to me that they didn't like the song, you know that every time... I feel the Spirit moving in my heart. I will pray. You heard that song? The song that goes like that. He says, I don't like that because it gives the impression that you only pray when you feel the Spirit moving in your heart. Now, I don't know if you've ever gotten up to pray at 5.30 in the morning. But at 5.30 in the morning, I don't feel any Spirit moving in my heart. (laughs) At 5.30 in the morning, I'm not even sure I'm saved. But that's why the Puritans, a bunch of Christians from years ago, they, they, said this, they said sometimes you have to pray yourself into prayer. And so sometimes you'll get to a prayer meeting, sometimes you'll open your Bible and you feel nothing. In fact, you feel exactly the opposite. But you don't let that stop you because our prayer isn't emotion dependent. It doesn't ride on our emotions. But our prayer, our prayer should at times lead us to this Jesus kind of prayer. The last thing I would say about this church praying earnestly, the last thing I would say is to us as a church community, one of the reasons that we, one of the reasons that we don't pray, and this is an important one, one of the reasons we don't pray is because We are educated, we are connected, we are resourceful, and we have technology. Does that make sense? What am I saying? I'm saying when I look at my heart, and this is only not, some of these may not even apply to you, but when I, when, I look at, when I look at my heart, I see that these things, in my pride, can become an obstacle to my awareness of my need for God. Someone put it this way, in, uh, in South Africa, there's a uh, you know, big, wealthy city called Johannesburg, poor areas inside, like all mega cities. And then there's a southwestern township called Soweto. And I remember one old South African pastor observing that when you go to a prayer meeting in a wealthy part of Johannesburg, and you go to a prayer meeting in Soweto, the southwestern poor township, he says they are very different. And he says the reason they are different is because when you go to the wealthy suburb and people are praying, maybe a church is praying for God's provision for the members of the church. He says those people, well, if God doesn't provide, their dad with the trust fund will or their aunt get an advance from their boss, they can get a loan from the bank, they've got a credit card. If God doesn't come through, they've got a plan B, C, D, and E. But he says, when you hear people praying in Soweto, 
you can tell that there is no plan B, C, D, or E. If God doesn't provide, there is no provision coming. And in our lives, if you heard Kogi, Pastor Kogi has been arrested. He's in prison, awaiting trial. What's your first response? Okay, okay, now do we have any lawyers in the church? We need, we need, we need a top lawyer, okay. What, what about bail? We can get him out on bail. Let's get, has it, have we got enough money to get him out on bail? Or is anyone connected enough and knows some politicians who can help him out of jail? And then, oh, oh yeah! And then while we're doing that, let's get a couple of those... Uh, old lady intercessors praying. Does that make sense? So what am I saying, friends? I'm saying, I'm not saying don't be educated. It's too late for some of you. I'm not saying don't be resourceful. I'm not saying don't use technology. I'm not saying don't be connected. But I'm saying in our education and resourcefulness and connectedness and technology, let prayer be our first resort and our last resort. Like the song, Chris Tomlin, he says, Jesus, you are my one defense. You are my righteousness. You are my plan. That is what a Christian people are. And that's what the church should be. So friends, let's be a people of prayer. Until we become that, we're going to keep on battling the same problems. I think it was Einstein who said that you cannot, you cannot solve a problem at the same level of thinking you were at when you created the problem. The Bible says the weapons of our warfare are not of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power for the demolishing of strongholds. Friends, we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Until we get that, it's like we're in a boxing match with both hands tied behind our back. One tribe, let us pray. And friends, listen to me. Most of you do not need another sermon on prayer. Most of you do not need another seminar on prayer. Most of us just need to pray. I am involved in the medical world, and one of the things about medicine is that you can read books up until a certain point. But until you are the one on call, with your stethoscope, on day one, there are some things you will never learn. And if you're like me, I think I don't have a PhD in prayer. I wish I, I, I'd read more prayer books and I wish I had. But at the end of the day, friends, the way we grow in prayer is by just doing it. And we can read the books and we can get into the seminars. But at the end of the day, we want to be a people who learn as we do. Christianity is an apprenticeship. We get our hands dirty. We're going to do that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. We're going to end that Wednesday, 7.30, with a one-hour online Zoom meeting. And we're calling ourselves as a church to prayer. Please, you should have the Zoom link already. If you haven't, please speak to uh, Paps. She's in the kids' church right now, to me or to one of our staff team, and we can get those details to you. Get the church email. Email us. Say, I, I need that Zoom link so we can meet together online and pray.
Verse 6, the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers with two cha- bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself. I love this. And they went through it. When they had walked the length of the street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. This story is designed to show us two things. If you get these two things, it'll understand, help you understand how to pray. It'll help you understand how to pray for the sick. It'll help you understand how to pray for breakthrough. It'll help you understand how you got saved, if you have been saved, if you have been rescued by Jesus. If you have not yet been rescued by Jesus, it'll help you understand how you can become rescued by Jesus. The story is designed to make two points. Point number one, Peter did nothing or close to nothing. Point number two, is God did it all. Now, this is in contrast to a series that will date me. How many of you watched Prison Break a few years ago? Michael Schofield, probably one of the best series that I have seen on TV ever. And the genius of it is there's this guy, Michael Schofield, and it's all about, especially the first season, it's all about the incredible attention to detail that goes into his planning of a prison break. And there's tattoos and there's plans and there's street maps and there's all kinds of things. And it's just a joy week after week. He thought about that. He planned that. Oh, that's what he was doing. And at the end of the day, Michael Schofield, the hero of the series, is the hero of the story. Not so over here. What is Peter doing? Peter's doing what? He is sleeping. That's his contribution. And then what happens next? He's sleeping and then he fails to wake up when the angel shows up. This is not very impressive prison break stuff. One of our kids said this. One of our kids said... You know, kids are still discovering themselves. You've got to be, you know, gentle with them. One of our kids said, uh, I'm, I'm a heavy sleeper. No, I'm a light sleeper. And I said to them, no, you're not. Because I have walked into their bedroom, shaken them physically like this, and they will carry on sleeping. I kid you not. You could drive a heavy vehicle into their bedroom, and they would carry on sleeping. That is Peter right here. Peter's sleeping. He isn't even woken up when the angel steps in. The lights, boom, I'm here. Oh, he's still sleeping. Do you see the detail? The angel had to hit him in the side. Wake up! Peter wakes up. Angel has to say to him, put your clothes on. (laughs) It's there. Puts the clothes on. Angel says, now get your cloak. Follow me, Peter. Peter's following him. The Bible makes it so clear, and he doesn't even know that what's happening is real. 
This is Peter, the spiritual guy, Peter, the Pentecost preacher guy. Peter been pastoring the church in Jerusalem with thousands of people for about 10 years at this point in time. And he thinks, this is just a great dream. This is like a vision. I love this. And it's only when, it's only when the prison break is signed, sealed, delivered, that Peter comes to himself. Revelation, ah, now I know that God has really sent this angel to rescue me. <laughs> this is great. Now, similarly, similarly, in terms of how you got rescued, you've got to get this clear in your mind. You contributed nothing. You've got to get this if you're not saved. You've got to get this if you are saved. You've got to remember this this morning. That's why the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Dead means you couldn't help yourself. Dead means that you couldn't plan a prison break. Dead means that the shackles couldn't fall off of, that you couldn't break the shackles off of you. Dead means unresponsive to God. In the words of one of the reformers, uh, Melanchthon, he said that the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. Salvation is referring specifically to our conversion in Christ, our initial coming to Christ. Friends, this is how we got saved, because of Jesus plus nothing. What did I contribute? The sin that he forgives. But he raised the dead with resurrection power. And friends, when we understand that, it changes the way we pray. Because we become a people who expect God to do it all. We become a people who begin to invade the impossible. We become a people who begin to believe God to do the miraculous amongst us. These hands cannot heal someone, but God can. These hands cannot break the power of depression, but God can. And friends, we are seeing it in our day, in our city. Mental health issues being resolved by one word from God. Darkness being pushed back by one word from God. Louis Giglio put it this way. He said that if we could see what happens when we pray, then we would never cease to pray. And this is one of the most beautiful pictures of what will happen, friends, over the next three days. And during that one hour on Wednesday night when God's people, God's church, prays. The angel of the Lord broke into the room. And as God's people pray, friends, we expect the manifest presence of God amongst us. He loves to make his presence known amongst a praying people. As God's people pray, light comes on and pushes back the darkness. How do you push back the darkness in your own soul? How do you push back the darkness in your community? How do you push back the darkness in the corridors of power in the government of our nation? Friends, it happens as God's people pray. As we pray, friends, we expect and we anticipate shackles falling off of people. We expect freedom to come rushing in like a flood as God's people pray. Because when God's people pray, God loves to do. I'd love us to end by singing a hymn together. Is that still okay? Maybe the band can come up and help us. 
I'd love us to stand and get ready to respond to this word. We chose to end with this hymn. It's a hymn that was written by Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley, I learned yesterday, wrote about 6,500 hymns. And this is like in his top 10 selection. And it's a hymn that he wrote to celebrate his conversion. It begins, you know the words, and can it be that I, a sinner, can be rescued by Jesus. And as we sing the first couple of verses, I'd love us to just meditate and remind ourselves of the truth of how Jesus set us free. And maybe God will lay people in our hearts who we know aren't free, who haven't encountered his love yet. We can pray for them. And then, third or fourth verse, it's actually taken from this very scripture where he, he parallels his resurrection, God giving him new life. He parallels that with what just happens right here with Peter and the angel. And as we do that, I want us to celebrate and be thankful for what God has done in our lives. And if God hasn't yet done that for you, as you sing that, you can ask him to do that for you. And in the midst of all that, let's be responding to this call from Scripture to be a praying church like that church in Jerusalem. Let's commit now to responding over the next three days. Don't worry about day four yet. Each, each day has enough trouble of its own. But let's say, God, please help me with prayer for these next three days. And then after that, we can talk about the rest. Let's pray. Let's worship.